today's episode, Dave interviews actor and director Will Schreiner. Will has directed episodes on Frasier, Becker, and Everybody Loves Raymond. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. Make it the same day I can make it. I know. I was thinking about when you have electric cars, everybody's going to just be looking for... Outlets for their electric cars. Yeah, I do a joke about the Bolt. I said it's a great car. You just plug the whole car into the cigarette light. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of an existential yeah. joke. Yeah. <laughs> Are we live now? No, there's another Rogowski that uh, used to write for Dave. Are you in a relationship? I'm Rizowski with a Z. Rizowski. Okay. Yeah. I think it was Dave Rizowski. Rogowski. I think. Yeah, yeah. Because there's not that. There's a few of us around. It's interesting thing is. Uh, there are a few of us around, Rosowski's, and there's a lot in Europe, uh-huh. uh, in France and stuff like that. What's the origin of the name? Thanks. Uh, um, is that mine? Is that That's me. me. Okay, fine. Um, me, I'm right here. Dave. Uh, but it's weird. it was weird, for, and the internet brought us so, so connected just in terms of people who have the same name as I do, where I always thought, like, I'm unique. It's like, I'm not really <laughs> Once you get on Facebook, you find everything. They're all there. Everybody's out there. All your old friends. You are really... I love your website. Oh, I just... That's a new one, and it's going to be a little more animated when I get to it. But it's really connected. I think it it really looks great. The picture's really great. Um, uh, and, And just the access that you have there. It's inspiring because it... You've done so many things. I've done a lot of things, too. You've done a lot of things, too. And you've separated it out so everybody can see what it is that you've done. Well, that, and that's the trick, because when people go to a website, they're going to probably hit it for, you know, like a couple of hits. They'll look for two or three clicks, and then they're done. Right. So my old website was like an overview, and it had a video, and it had all this stuff going on. it. And, and, and people would, like, my wife, like, hey, there's a part on Rock of Ages. And the guy's looking for an actor. And I said, well, send him to my actor site. Well, you had to go, and you had to, like, click four times to right. find it. And he was like, what is this guy? He's got a jumping dolphin. What does this guy do? And, and I lost the job because the website was confusing. <laughs> so I went in and got a guy to, to, I bought a WordPress template. And, oh, you did? Is that what you do? And that's what that is. That's a template, but it was fairly unique because WordPress sites all look the same. Joomla sites all look the same. Uh-huh. So um, I got a template and then I had a guy, paid a guy to modify it. I see, I so, see, I see. But at least when you go there now, you get you can say, oh, okay, I'm looking for a director, I'm looking for an auctioneer, I'm looking for an actor, I'm looking right. for a host, I'm looking for whatever. So at least that site then takes you to a child menu of, of the other sites. You've What's really all, what's also great about that is, it, it for me, it makes you, it brings me to how much you've really done. And, because you've really done a lot. Which, but which means nothing today. No, I hate but to it, say that, but, 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 you know, but it's what have I done last, last week, you know? Yeah, 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 but still you get to feel that you've done some yeah, stuff. No, and I'm, I'm not saying in an, ego, in, an ego, in, in an egotistic way. I'm not saying like, look at all I've done, but you know what? You're one of these journeymen, and I, and I say that in the most respectful of ways, where you have not stopped. Well, yeah, it's true that if you do a bunch of different things, and I, I do a joke about that, how I'm a director, writer, actor, and I'm never out of work in all areas. You know, there's always like one, <laughs> one that's, area that's, that's still such a great, That's such yeah. a great thing, that, that you're not out of work in all areas, so you're not out of work. Right, right. And you've also, you, you haven't pigeonholed yourself in any, any one thing. Right. Well, the goal, the goal if you're going to be in show business is to just work. I mean, you, you talk to actors... You know, I was sitting, having lunch with Ernest Borgnine. I, I hate to drop names. Well, that's a, that's a name. sentence. But here he is, 94 years old, right. and he says, I just want to work. Right. I said, really, you don't want to relax? You don't have enough money? Yeah, I got plenty of money. I just want to work. Right. I can't get insured. 
Right. <laughs> you know, and that's what they've yeah. had. They've had problems with that with all the great actors who've been. I think that there's a story about Laurence Olivier not being able to be insured for Marathon Man. Oh. Can you imagine? You've seen that movie. Yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine that movie without him? Can you imagine that movie with? No. Without someone of that age, yeah. even? Oh, I mean, and he was such a villain in that movie. You know? Oh, my. Pain or pleasure? Pain exactly. Or, I mean, it right, was just, right. if you saw that, if you know, and it's just like, reminds you of Jill and Dustin T. Yes, it's safe. Is safe. it safe? The white angel, the white angel. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you remember from that movie. That woman who's, who was said that. Who directed that? Was, that? Uh, was uh, it? I, I want to say Sidney Lumet, but I, no. I could be wrong. Well, no, right you, no. no. I don't, yeah, but the woman that screamed, the vice angle, that's... That is, oh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Uda Hagen or something? Uda Hagen. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah, Uda yeah, Hagen. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that's yeah, Uda yeah, Hagen. Yeah. I think that, oh, thank you so much. Because I think that was Uda Hagen's Wait, only movie. Do you have any book. questions throughout this interview? Just throw them. Uh, you've you been around, <laughs> that's the whole thing. But it's I'm like, a movie, you know, I'm a fan of movies. I came, I moved here, I tell my son, I moved here in 75 to go to UCLA Film School and to, to make movies. From the Midwest? From Florida. From Florida. From Florida. So mm -hmm. I came out here and that was the goal. And I went, I met this guy, Gary Shusett, who had a film school on Ivar in Hollywood called the Sherman, Sherwood Oaks Experimental Cabinet. Mm -hmm. Sherwood Oaks Experimental Academy, and he had Rod Serling taught a 12-week writing class. I took a 10-week <laughs> comedy class with Jonathan Winters and with George Carlin. Shut up! And he, yeah, he had Francois Truffaut. Wait, 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 and then would analyze it. You wait, know? wait, I gotta back it up. I just gotta back it up. And a friend of mine, Richard Lay, was gonna be upset because he says, "Let the see, let it go, let the interview go where it's gonna go." But wait, you, you, uh, let, let me go through that again. You said Rod, Sir, Rod, Rod Serling would show a Twilight Zone or Night Gallery uh -huh. and then dissect it structurally. Uh -huh writing-wise, everything. It was the most interesting, and the only reason, I, I wired up all their projection booths because I was, I was a journeyman electrician when I was in high school. So I did that in exchange for Are you an IBW? No, 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 I okay. just worked, you know, it was uh -huh. a way to get out of high school early. Got it, <laughs> my dad's IBW. Oh yeah, so no, no, I was, uh -huh. it was in VICA, which was vocational industrial training. <laughs> I was the president, the vice president. Both of us were the only two in the class without <laughs> jobs. <laughs> they said, you guys, you know, this can't go on forever. So we, we, got, we got jobs uh -huh. uh, building, uh, mostly construction electrician, which was just basically conduiting up with got the, it right, with the right. Any conduit yeah, and yeah. pulling wire, right, fishing yeah, wire. Yeah. Uh, so you're going. So you're at Rod Serling. So I go and see all these great people. And, and wait, he, wait, name them again. Well, the, the ones I took classes with, yeah. Johnny Alonzo took a uh -huh. cinematography class. I took an editing class with Dan O'Banion that wrote Alien. Mm -hmm. I took comedy with Carlin for 10 weeks. George Carlin would come for two <sighs> hours and lecture on joke structure about how, you know, comedy's like a picture and you either have to tilt your perspective as you look at it or you tilt the picture and see it differently than, the, you know, looking straight on. And he would dissect how, com you know, and when you dissect how what makes people laugh and what's comedy, it kind of becomes... Not funny. It becomes very analytical. Right. But there is a there is a trick to it. There is a structure to right. You know your point of view, and you have to have a point of view, and we have to know your point of view if you're going to get a laugh from it. Right. But anyway, they had he had hundreds. I mean, he had an acting seminar once at the old Writers Guild Theater on Doheny. Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Jimmy Kahn, uh, Bobby Duvall. I mean, all these guys sat on a panel for all afternoon and talked about their craft. I mean, it, it re-inspires you. I, I was about to say that that in, that that it gives you that boost of going. You know what? I, well, first off, one of the best things is you know that you're not alone, and you know that everything that everybody has, you know that what it was that you were going through, all these other people have gone through. Right. And not that you're going to get their life because you're not. They already have it. But you're going to get the inspiration that they had somehow gotten from somebody else that kept kept you going, and not kept you going, and kept you going, but kept you going in a way where you go. 
whatever it is that I want, I can get. It right. might not look like the way that I want it, but I'm going to get it. Right. And it was an easy road for those people. I mean, they all tell you their struggle. It was. A, I was at the DGA for the awards, and they had all the directors. This meet the nominees thing, which is great if you're a DGA. Recently, now. just last week. Uh-huh. And it was Catherine Bigelow and 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 uh, Tom Hooper and. Ben Affleck and Ang Lee, who was right. very funny. And right. Ang Lee was the, the funny guy. And Spielberg. And, and Jeremy Kagan, the moderator, said, let's address doubt in your lives. How does doubt come into your life? I thought it was a great question. Yeah. And Spielberg, all of them. I mean, Affleck was the funniest. He goes, hey, doubt. I'm an actor. I got the biggest doubt. I right. got the biggest self-worth questions of any of these guys. But even Spielberg said when he was deciding to make this movie, he says, I'm going to do Lincoln. He says, I'm, for the rest of my life, I'm going to look at a $5 bill and be reminded that I screwed up this movie. <laughs> you know, so I have to put that aside and think I'm either going to tell the greatest Lincoln story or I'm not going to do it. But that's how he addressed doubt and put it aside. And everybody else had their own anecdote of how they do. But it was funny that they all, Ang Lee, you know, you know, he said, I had to, you know, I'm making a cowboy movie. You know, he did Brokeback Mountain. He said, right. I, I don't, I, I'm a, you know. I'm a Taiwanese, you know, director. What do I know about cowboys? Right. But everything he's a tackled, and even this very heavy uh, visual effects movie with Life of Pi. Right. He didn't know that much about that process, but he says, "I doubt for a second, and then I move on." And that's the key. I doubt for a second, and then I move on. Yeah. I want to address the Spielberg looking at the five dollar bill, right. only because for me, I, I, the, the way that I would think was because I'm not Spielberg. I don't right. have Spielberg. Money. Look at a penny. I would look at a penny, <laughs> uh, and every time I look at a penny, but it's like yeah, how many uh, pennies does he look at? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the idea that that um, I, I, you let yourself rest in that doubt, and then you move on mm-hmm. from there. You don't engage in the right. doubt because to engage in the doubt is what you're to you give know, it power. Well, it, say it again. Give it power. Give it, it power. power. Yeah, exactly. And I think that people think that they can't disengage mm-hmm. from the engagement of that doubt. Yeah. Well, you know, on all performance, I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, I talked to my niece who who's wants to be a singer, and she's tremendous stage fright. Mm-hmm. You know, I, my son has tremendous confidence on stage, but underlying, there's always that question, are they going to laugh, are they going to be funny? Right. When you sing, you wait to the end of the song for applause. When you're a comic, you wait, you know, for the punchline, or every 10 or 20 seconds, you need some sort of feedback from right. the audience. Um, it is a tremendous challenger of, of your self-worth, your value, your, your ability to make people laugh. But the more you do it, the more confident you get. And, right. you know, and after a certain, I've been doing stand-up for 30 years, you know, at a certain point if it's a really crappy crowd. And I go into rooms with six people because it doesn't phase me anymore. No. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have fun with the six of us. I don't, right. I'm not looking to, you're, you don't have to give me the applause and, 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 and big response to validate what I'm doing up here. I'm just working out material. And I want to. I want to reach you guys. I want to make comics used to. And I, I, I forget who said it. I mean, it might have been Larry Miller. We used to look for the for our own sort of happiness from doing stand up, mm-hmm. but it's really about pleasing the audience. Right. And I've always said you've got to be able to look at your audience. If if it's you know if it's eighty year old war vets, you know chances are that ganja material is not going to work. You know, <laughs> so just adjust accordingly. Right. Yeah. Right. No. And 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 I think that what it also does, and we're going back to this, is. If you keep looking at what is the gratitude that I'm getting from it as opposed to I'm connected to everybody else, you don't feel alone. And when you don't feel alone, you don't have to protect yourself. What you're saying is these people are for me. They're not against me. Um, And also the the thought of um, say that there's just six people out Mm -hmm. there. um, That's no reflection on you. Those six people came out and they saw you. They came out to see you. Well, mm-hmm. you know, or they're there, and you you happen to you know you're, you're one on a like on a, 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 a corporate gig is that? Well, is no, that no, these no these six people. This is like in a little open. You know, I sometimes I go to a little black box club. And you're Florida. still doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, but then 
two weeks ago, I went and opened for Kevin Nealon at Tampa Improv, which was 350 people, four right. sold-out shows. Right. You hit the, there was a, there was an opener, so he gets some quiet and he gets some you know settled in, and then right. you got 30 minutes to kill. God, that's and awesome. You know, I have more pressure on me killing with a hot crowd because I want I don't want to you don't want to risk losing a hot crowd. Right. You got a 30 minute you got 30 minutes to take a crowd. And it's great, you know. And then and Kevin the same. He's got fifty minutes, fifty five minutes, you know. So we want to we want to just take them and you know peak them. That's really you know, good. And it's, it's fun, and and that's for me the joy of going back to stand up. Having directed for so many years, I I lay off of stand up, and when I do go back, I have renewed enthusiasm for it. That you know, Certainly. just from 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 I missed it, you know. And you are the writer, director, editor, producer, you know, right. performer. You are all those jobs. So, Can you imagine if any of those jobs, you did not have confidence in any of those, in any of those five things that you just listed, it affects the other things that you're doing because you right. are, doubt is then entering you on that. It's like, oh, I, you know, I like my material, but how am I going to get people to come to see the show? I've got come people to come to see the show, but are they going to like the material? And mm-hmm. any of those things, the foundation of that which you're building upon falls to the wayside. The fact that you are... Um, you know, I guess it, it doesn't really matter that you're headlining. Of course, it does because it's you know. There's, well, there's, there's a difference. When, when I was when I had my talk show and I was on TV a lot, mm-hmm. people I'd go on the road and people were coming predisposed. They liked you. You could come out and just hold your penis for an hour. Right. And they liked what you know. Oh, he's great. He's so reggy. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're pr- coming in predisposed. Right. But I'd come up through the ranks of opening for people where they were coming to see Tom Jones, Neil Sedaka, <laughs> Barry Mantle, whoever I was opening for. Right. I opened for Anne Murray at the Greek once. There's five thousand people. There's no announce, no play on. The curtain opens and you come out. And you're right. Like, hey, everybody. You know, and the people are talking. And and waving at their friends. It's like 10 minutes before they realize where the voice is coming from. <laughs> you, you know, so you're up there and they're like, what, where, there's somebody talking somewhere. Oh, because it's still daylight, you know. And so, you know, and, 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 and you know, they're, you're basically there just to dim it down till the show starts, you know. Right. So it's a really hard gig. And with 5,000, fortunately I did 5,000 with her for two nights and then I went to Irvine with 10,000. Uh-huh. You can't even hear the laughs. Who, who was it you opened? Oh, Anne Murray. Anne Murray. Murray. Yeah. She's Canadian. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and, and Irvine, 10,000 people, the laughs are coming down while you're like into your third joke. Right. Because it just takes rolling a while. down like being at the it's, bowl. Yeah, so you, tr- you trust in your inherent timing to know how much to give. But the experience that you get from having done it so many times gives you the confidence to know that how to, uh, how to address that house how to physically be in that house, mm-hmm. how to connect with the audience. Right. My God, man, 10,000 10, people. Um, there's, it, I, I suppose you see that as a wash of one person that you're talking to. Yeah, it's, it's a, it, is, it is a wash. Like the Tonight Show with Johnny, when they had that stage, it was 500 raked seats, and you came out, and it, the, was, there were follow spots. It was so bright. You just saw the red light of the tally light. You right. didn't see any faces. You didn't right. see anything. And the first time you do that, it's very intimidating because I had done a couple other talk shows prior to that. I'd done Merv Griffin where the audience, right. you could see the audience. You could right. see the blue hair out there. And you're like, hey, <laughs> Miller. Uh, but, but with Johnny, it was like such a hot. And you see any comedian in those days that w- made their debut on The Tonight Show, that first laugh just envelops you. Right. And you just go, it's going to be fun, and you right. relax, and you have a good time. Um, I did a voice of uh, uh, Albert Brooks was was promoting the Muse, his his, mm-hmm. his show, the Muse, and I got cast out here to be the voice of Albert Brooks' parrot. That's uh-huh. his bit that he was going to yeah. do on Letterman. 
And I was the voice, and it wasn't like Grr! the voice was just this. Yeah. And it was a parrot that was four words away from the Guinness Book of World Records of how many words a parrot could say. <laughs> right. And um, <laughs> it was pretty good. It's a funny premise. Yeah. It's a really yeah. funny premise. And we, and and Albert and I rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it over the phone, and it was really wonderful. And um, and then I sat in his office when he was in New York, and we had a phone hookup. Mm -hmm. And the and this is uh, so so the first joke out. He says, how's it going, Polly? And I think the line was like, really going great. Where the hell are you? And the, the laugh, that initial mm -hmm. laugh, well, it shocked me. Mm -hmm. And it put me at ease. Because I know the sound of right. the Letterman laugh. Right. And you know the sound of the Carson laugh. Mm -hmm. And that, where at that moment, you go, I can breathe. Yeah, right. Well, you got to let them laugh, too. You know, I, you know, I see many young comics that don't, give them an opportunity to laugh. You make it okay for them to laugh. Right. You know, there's a rhythm that they get tempo. used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's also, you've got to be in tempo to them. And mm -hmm. each audience is going to be different. The Merv Griffin audience is so going to be so different than the Letterman audience, than the, you know, well, just yeah. those two right there. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, when, when I, I used to do a lot of Letterman's, and that audience, it was the old, uh, I think it was this, uh, the Fifth Floor 5A at NBC Rockefeller Center. Right. I was doing the morning show. That audience came in at like 8.30. We did a 10 o'clock live show, but they were fired up and ready to go. And then when I started doing Late Night in that studio, it was still a small studio, but it was still, they were, you know, they were there for Dave. Dave never let anybody, you couldn't get a ticket to the, he wanted fans only. He didn't right. want any agent, you know, friends of an agent. You know, I got, uh, you, yeah. know, you know, Meyer Lansky's cousin wants four tickets. No, it ain't going to happen. You can't have them, you know. Yeah, well, that's yeah. weird because Meyer Lansky, that name really got to pull these I was looking days. for an obscure name. <laughs> it was a really good name. It's like Meyer Lansky. Shh, shh. Meyer Lansky's great yeah, He's got power. Here. We should be able to get four. He can't get four tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what you're doing? You're killing your career. Yeah, yeah. Not Meyer Lansky. But, um, but, but Dave, Dave Letterman's show, Dave Letterman, like he's, he controls everything in that show. Oh, yeah. Well, Dave, you know, there were, Dave, as much as I, I think Dave's such a great broadcaster, and he's still, you know, I mean, when people say, oh, he's same old tricks and everything, he's still, still it's, it's as watchable as ever. Yeah. You know, because when he's got a guest... He can bring stuff out of a guest, Harrison Ford or somebody like that. You know, he, it's just like a rare interview that you're not going to see anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dave will just go, how many moose you got up there? You know, he'll take it on a tangent that's, right. that only entertains him. But the guests on Dave are really there for his enjoyment, and they have for to Dave's remember enjoyment. that. And Dave wants those guests if, if, to have... Come with game, right? He he. The worst thing he hates is some you know. Let's just pick a name out of the hat. Somebody who's hot right now, like Meyer James Lansky. Franco or Meyer oh, yeah. Lansky. But a guy you know comes on and thinks, oh, I can just talk about my life. And exactly. you know, no, no, we want let's let the pre-interview <clears throat> get to the meat of the story. Right. He wants that. Well, know? didn't Johnny? Didn't Johnny Carson? Wouldn't he? Who's I? Who's I listening to? Where somebody was saying uh, Carson would just ask you, like, what's going on in your life? Oh, it was a Jonathan Winters interview. Uh huh. It was. Um, um, my friend Rick Overton, who has a podcast, he's interviewing Rick, right, Jonathan right, Winters, yeah. and Jonathan Winters was talking about his first time on Carson mm -hmm. and saying how Johnny Johnny Carson just said, um, "What's going on?" And he goes, uh, "I got a story about my family." And Carson went, "I don't want to hear about it right now. Tell me so that we can milk it at that moment." Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you mean during the break? No, just before oh. before he went on stage, right, yeah, yeah. he would meet with him. Right. 
Is that how it would work? Well, way back, maybe with somebody like Jonathan. Generally, the, uh, Jim McCauley, who was the booker in those days, would, uh-huh. would, would, would go over your material, make mm-hmm. sure your set was approved, and then if you, were gonna, if you knew you were going to do panel, in the got beginning it. you didn't know, sometimes you just come over, Johnny would call you over. But when you finally got over to sit with Johnny, there were like two or three questions, you know, like, oh, I hear you're having a baby was right. the setup, you know. So I did, right. I did one joke with him on my, it's on my website. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, Lamaze class. And he didn't get it. The audience I got it. Him. And he, when he got it, it was like he went down on the table and pounded. I, I mean, I was I like, I, you know, I remember thinking, boy, this is going to be on the demo reel. <laughs> but Johnny was the best audience, the best listener, you know. I, I mean, and Johnny took great pride in launching careers that he liked. He liked, you know, Shanley, Seinfeld, I mean. Right. And there were guys who, like Carlin and Cosby and those guys who always wanted to do stand-up on the show because they wanted to remind people they were a stand-up. Right. And uh, you know, I thought, well, once you get big enough, hey, who needs a stand-up set? You come out, you sit down, and you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, who was the great Bob Euchre? And mm-hmm. there, were, there were Calvin Trill, and there were great oh God, panelists, right. you know, right. Orson Bean, guys who just tell stories. Uh, Orson Bean, yeah, man. but they would just tell the stories, and it was, right. it was great, it was great television. You know, nowadays, you know, everything. I remember once with David, they wanted to pre-interview, they want all the questions. So what's the setup? What's the question? So I said, mm-hmm. well, t- ask them to ask me about the flight. <clears throat> And I said, well, I got a joke about it. I forget what the joke was. And so when Dave says, well, how was, you have a good flight out here? I said, no, you know, Dave, I slept on the plane because I got enough material, airline material. Well, he didn't know that was coming and he got a good laugh out of him. But they also get mad that you, you know, that you, you know, you subtrovert the, uh, you know. The flow of it for well, a joke. Well, yeah. And, but, Is that but, what you're saying? You're yeah, well, they want, yeah. they want to know. They, 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 he doesn't want any surprises. Right. Oh, I see what you're yeah, saying. I yeah. see what you're saying. So I he see. would have liked to have known that I was going to say, you know, and I think why. You know, I mean, that's what comedy, you know, if an improv teaches you to listen. Right. And if you're a good listener, you're a good comedian because I, you know, hey, and Ed McMahon told me that when I first started doing my talk show, he said, the question, the second question is not on the note card. The second question is what the answer to the first question. The second line of the scene, the second yeah. line is, is what sets the scene. Right. The first line, the first line out doesn't set the scene. Mm-hmm. It's the reaction that you get mm-hmm. by the response right. that sets the scene. And then you know where you're going. And I think that people loved Carson. And it's interesting because when you were telling that story, I was thinking about Carson, uh, improv. Carson loved that improvisatory mm-hmm. connection there. Right. And he and and to watch him explode in that way, right. there's and to watch his kinesthetic response when you when you had that joke about breathing, right. to watch his kinesthetic response on that that he just you know his shape right. changed and he fell yeah. behind the desk and he was pounding it. You go, that's real. Right. That's a real thing that's yeah. happening in that moment. Well, that was always the goal of uh, that Macaulay t- for the comics was do material that's going to make Johnny laugh and right. he'll have a career. You know, it was right. like well, you know, I do this easy line about you know my penis that gets no no no. It's what and he would Jim was always steering us towards what would make Johnny laugh. Right, and, and yeah. what would make Johnny laugh was who you are. Right. It's not the dick joke. Well, and, and, and they always, the, you know, the Tonight Show, when you're a comic, they always talk, the first joke out should be something about yourself. You have to tell the audience who mm-hmm. you are. You know, hey, I'm, I grew up in the Midwest, or whatever you're, you know, I live in San Francisco. Right. And, you know, but he, they, they, I think comics, uh, when they're up there, we as the audience want to know a little about them before we get into whether we're going to give them... Give us context. Yeah, we're going to give us, we're going to give you our easy laughs. You yeah. Know, you know. So it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's something, I mean, you, you teach it, you know, I, I lecture on it. I mean, it's, it's making people laugh. Is, it's, it's, it's one of those intangibles. You can kind of explain it, but you really can't. You I know? think at the, at, at, at the beginning of it all, someone needs to tell people this is about you having confidence in who you are to set me at ease so that I can listen to whatever you're going to say. Right. Because if I think at some point you're going to go off the rails or you don't have that, that, that confidence, I'm gonna think, oh, it's gonna fall. I'm not listening to what you're saying. I'm nervous about what right. you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not connecting with you in a, in a way. And, and any good lecturer 
it has that confidence. Right. And they, they, they engage you right. You got to engage them right away because they're, you have like about a minute. Otherwise, people just start if checking their much. Blackberries and like, you know. Right. And, you, you know, generally, you Other know, if you can now, open I with it. Yeah, I wouldn't do the Blackberry. Blackberry I'm still a rim guy. Yeah, um, right, right. I wouldn't say that, yeah, you know, if you're yeah. trying to keep it clean. Well, I have but, an yeah, iPhone. No, here. I get it. Yeah. Um, but it's rotary. It's very old. <laughs> rotary cell phone. But, but yeah, right, right. The, and, and that minute that you have, that's all that you've got. And in that minute, it's also not a desperation thing. Mm. Right. And to watch you when you came out, was that the first... Carson that you had with the Lamaze joke? No, no, no. That was probably the fifth or sixth. Okay, all right. I got to do about 12 with Johnny. I did three with Dave in the beginning, which kind of, you know, it was like, you know, broke my hymen, as they say. Right. Because I kind of was comfortable in the environment. Right. So then I did I did a couple. I did one with Joan. I did some with Jay. I did some with, even John Larroquette hosted, you know. Oh, I didn't know Larroquette hosted. Yeah, well, so, you know, there was a run where they were just looking for anybody to host. Right, them, so, but, right. But, and I, I forgot. I did, in those days, I was doing little funny films, which uh-huh. was sort of one of my other sort of careers, was making these little funny newsreels mm-hmm. and funny things. And so I had done something with him. And, you know, like the that was always for me, in the clubs, it was always the killer. I have, I could always kill with the films. Right. So you would show the films in the clubs. In the clubs, I bring a projector mm-hmm. and I have to, you know, get there early and tape it down. So right. Trip over, and I have a screen standing somewhere that I could put up a tripod screen, and then I would show these newsreels. That's how I got on my very first time at the comedy store. Mm-hmm. Was I showed this movie, and it was a, it was. I remember Amy Carter. Was, there was a couple of Amy, a little chimp, and there was a reference to Amy Carter, and it would just kill. And I mean, I literally, Mitzi said, "Okay, uh, well." It's not really a theater. And I said, but it's different. It's, you know, I had to sell myself. I said, you know, Amy, I'm kind of different. Yeah. You, you saw the response. She yeah. goes, no, no, you, you did very well. And she goes, all right, call on Mondays and you're regular. And then I had to start writing because then you get 15-minute spots. And right. I had like, you know, I had two films and, and five minutes. And oh. keep expanding and expanding. Uh, you're, 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 that keep expanding, expanding, that, that. Uh, the idea of keep expanding, expanding. The idea that I enjoy doing this, so I'm going to do this next. I enjoy doing that, so I'm going to do this next. I enjoy doing that, so I'm going to do this next. That seems to be a theme for what you're, for where, for the history of, for the amount of work that you've done. Well, you know, I I, I never I, I never get bored because I'm always doing something different, and so that you enjoy. Yeah, I mean, even now I look at the the opportunities in web in the web. Right. You know that I can do something with no notes, no. You know, I can take a camera and 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 I, I'm shooting stuff. Now with GoPros and I have a, a VX with a Panasonic P2 card camera that takes incredible 24. It's incredible. Feet. It looks good. I bought it on Craigslist for two thousand bucks. It may right. be hot, but I'm not asking. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, it takes incredible. I shot a reality pilot for a guy who wants who who wants to do a, a reality show based on his business in Florida, and I said, Yeah, we'll, 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 he said, Well, they want fifty thousand to do it. Yeah, we can do it for a lot less. And now can we do it shot for a lot this, less. Cut it together. We got it up on Vimeo, and now we we send people the link and say you're interested, and people like it, and people we've gotten you know we haven't got a yes yet, but we've gotten responses like, oh, could you make it crazier? Can you know, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, would you give us money to do that? No, 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 <laughs> just, just do it. On, you know, however you did it before, do it again. So we put a, you know, we put a transvestite in, we put a 12-foot python, you know, so we're trying to, Why? we're but, trying to give them what they're looking for. And you're opening it, but you're opening yourself up to all that thing, all that, all that possibility. You can think, what if we do this? What if we do this? What if we do this? What if right. we do this? There's no, we can't do that. Right. Well, and you can do anything now. I mean, the, right. the, 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 what's on reality television from Honey Boo Boo to Buck Wild to, right. to uh, you know, Amish Mafia. I mean, it's it's really there. And somebody says, "Is there a reality show in my life?" There's a reality show in everybody's That's life. That's why I feel if you make it interesting and you got to produce it, you have to make it compelling. That's what I keep telling you know. Right. We can't just film what you do. We have to add to it. We have to make it. We have to you know. There's got to be a you know. Oh, there's a warning light. We're low on fuel. I mean, you got to put some drama. You got to right. put some conflict. You know, and that's that's. And what also heighten what it is that you, that right. is already there. Right. Because I think that a lot of people are going to look at things and say, um, uh, "I don't believe that," because it's not a heightened version of who it is that you are. You're trying to make it. 
you're, you're, you're pushing me to have an emotional impact. But what I love about Honey Boo Boo, ugh, did I say that? Um, I the little it. that I saw of it, um, what, what, what I found to be compelling was they were so real, I couldn't take it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what they're, it's better than date, you know, because daytime drama piece you watch is see other people whose lives were more worse off than they were. They were right. like, oh, the tragedy of them. She's cheaping with them. Now with Honey Boo, you go, oh, my God, this is, these are real people. And I'm a, I'm a road scholar compared to these people. Exactly. I mean, the fact that we have to subtitle an English-speaking show I know. Is, is frightening, I know. you know. So, like, what did she say? Yeah, I mean, it's, but I think people watch that for the train wreck. We're just, we're just, we're just, I mean. But that's all, but that's yeah. all, that's the reason that we go yeah. to stand-up, too. Yeah. That's the reason that we go to improv shows, too. Mm. It's that idea of these people are living on the edge. And right. I think that a lot of people look at the careers that we have and to say, I just couldn't do that because right. it's too on the edge. It's right. just too on the edge. And I think I couldn't do what you're doing because it's too on the edge in a different way. Right. It's too on the edge of a soul-sucking way right, where right. I just, I couldn't do that. Um, but you you grew up with models of the world of possibilities. Well, my mother was a dancer, acrobatic right. dancer. My dad was a radio star who became a TV star who was a humorist and worked all over the country. Worked on, he had a TV show, had a 15-minute show in the 40s, and then in the 50s he had a game show called Two for the Money, which was sponsored by Old Gold, and it mm-hmm. was kind of a panel it was like you bet your life. They right, talk to the people, they play for a game. Yeah. And then he went to do a, rea- uh, a variety show, which was sketches and music and guest stars. And then he got out. And he got out of TV. He got out of TV and uh, never looked back and worked live for the rest right. of his life. And I, we had a, in those days, we had a Gibbon ape that my, that my parents had gotten because they were, <laughs> they were looking for a kid that didn't Thank talk you. back, that didn't sass him. You know, and this, this Gibbon had no vocal, you know, <laughs> he had no vocal prowess. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You had a Gibbon ape? As a family member? Yeah, it was a family member. Like in a backyard cage No, it, was, it ate, it, ate it at our dinner table. It, it ate at your dinner well, table. Well, my, my brother, who would, he would, you know, he had horrible manners. I think he picked him up from the monkey. And they would have to eat in the kitchen sometimes. But, but yeah, he would sit, we had a, we, we, he wore diapers, he walked around the house. Who cleaned the diapers? My, me or my mother were the only ones that he would have anything to do with. So And, and, with, and how long did you live? Why? What happened here? Wait. Well, we, we got him when he was like six weeks old. The stewardess used to bring him from Thailand. And we bought. Wait, the stewardess? Got, what stewardess? You have a uh, stewardess uh, uh, too? No, no. Pan Am stewardesses used to smuggle. They, well, they tragically take him for the mother. I think they usually kill the mother and they uh-huh. get the babies. And my dad got one. He got two, and then it were too much for him. And then after it was gone, he kind of missed it. So he got another one. And so it, we had him from six weeks to about four. Four or five years old. Yeah. And then what did you do? Well, then my folks died, and uh-huh. we were going to move to Texas and live with my grandmother in Texas. He, he, the monkey didn't want to go to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> the monkey wait, preferred wait. to stay I, in the tropics. If you're tropic. looking for a title for your autobiography, yeah. it would be The Monkey Didn't Want to Go to Texas. The monkey didn't want to go. That's a great, that's a great. Well, I used to stand in the wings because my dad discovered that he could... My dad bought a, uh, a motorhome from Elvis Presley's dad. It was Elvis's old motorhome. Jesus and, Christ. And it, was, it was his dressing room. And, and, uh-huh. and so he put a cage in there, a little cage, because the monkey couldn't always be loose, especially if we were going out or something. You know, he'd honk the horn. You'd be in the it's restaurant. a monkey. You'd hear him honking the horn. You know, hey. So me and the monkey used to stand in the wings of my dad would be on stage in some big venue somewhere. And, and my dad would, you know, I want to meet my, my newest member of the family. Of course, I didn't go out. The monkey went out. So I would hold the monkey, and we'd watch him. And I looked at the monkey, and the monkey looked at me, and I thought, this is a pretty good gig. Thank God the monkey didn't go into show business. <laughs> yeah, well, you always get stood up by, uh, uh, you know, everybody's going to look at the monkey. What was the monkey's name? Tiki. Tiki? Tiki. Yeah, the kids love hearing the monkey stories because when I used to change his diaper, if he was in a particularly frisky mood, he would stick his hand in the feces and then rub it on your face and laugh. He would go... <laughs> 
and he thought it was a funny. And I would stick the hand in the feces and rub it on his face, and then we'd be flipping it back and forth, and it would be a mess. Once you do that, you probably could take care of anybody. Well, yes, yes. It was a lot like Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. That's exactly what I was yeah. thinking. It's like, oh boy, once you could do that, it's like, oh, there's Grandpa or whatever. But you have, you know, you live this. You live this. It did not seem odd at all. Right. And the monkey was a chick magnet. When I walked around, I mean, girls would come over and you know, I pet your monkey. And that's another that title was, for yeah, the book. Yeah, Cut your bucket, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting thing. But 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 you back to your question, which was was I watched my dad work one hour right. a night on the weekends. I thought these I like these hours, right? Oh, but certainly. I always worked. I mean, from fifteen on, I was had a job. I was a bus boy. I was mm-hmm. a boat rental cleaner. I was a electrician. I worked uh, did always did odd jobs till I got out here. My first job was in, in working for Dick Clark on Live Wednesday, which was a variety show he did, and uh, I, I, t- I told Dick that that's uh, Dick. The, the opening night, the show didn't go, ex, you know, didn't go the way he wanted it to go. We uh-huh. went back to John Moffat, the director's house, and Dick drank a lot of wine, and I was the guy that drove him back to work, and I drove him, he and he back to Broad Beach, and he and we got there, and, and Carrie goes, that takes a sleep. So what, what do you want me to do? And she says, can you carry him into the house? I said, sure. You know, so I got Dick Clark. I'm 20 years old, and Dick passed out Dick Clark over my shoulders, going up into the house. I said, where do you want him? She says, well, should we take him up to the bedroom? I said, yeah, sure. We got this far. Take him up. I throw him on the bed. I said, you want me to undress him? She goes, no, no, no. I'll take him from here. I'm going to change the diaper. Um, but and I thought I'm in show business, right? You know? It's it's, well, it's, it's fu- so funny because uh, do you, you know uh, Mark Wahlberg who hosts Antiques mm-hmm. Roadshow? Yeah, I do very well. Yeah. Um, so Mark was here a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling Dick Clark stories too mm-hmm. that had to do with him cleaning up one of the dog's poops underneath uh, uh, Mark's desk when he was right. working for right. uh, for Dick Clark, and how Dick Clark's on his hands and knees cleaning up poop. Yeah. He's looking at, you know, watching yeah. Dick Clark. Yeah. So Dick Clark started so many people. Dick had a great eye for people, and he, you know, mm-hmm. and he had so many shows. I was a, uh, I had a series of bloopers and practical jokes that I did. Oh wait a minute, that was the show that my wife was. I my sh- my ex wife was a. Was was uh, uh did uh, was a producer on that? Oh show. really? What's her, what's her? Her name, name was uh, Katie Moore, and Katie it was Moore. years. Yeah, years yeah it was ago. years and years ago. Yeah, Probably. yeah. But Katie worked on that show. Yeah, it was like eighty three, so eighty four. Awesome. Yeah, and I had this little video segment oh. where I showed. Mm-hmm. I had my dogs, and I would show these films that I made, and then we found around the country. It was we were showing people's home videos, mm-hmm. but it was like three years before the camcorder craze. Got so it. Saget came along with the America's Funniest Videos. Two or three years later, and had a huge hit with that. Right, so right. We were always uh, just a little ahead of our time. But that show wasn't that show redone too. The yeah, they've they've redone yeah. it over. And I think over. that that's the one that Katie was on was the redone oh, one the second in one, the nineties. Yeah, because yeah, Dick and, and Ed hosted this one, and there was a bunch of contributors: Tom Sharp, myself, and right. Other people. We all had our little segments, you know. Right, right. Uh, and and that uh, and 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 Dick Clark was just somebody that just went, "I'm going to hire you. You want? I'm going to hire you." And yeah, you know, didn't, he didn't pay us much. You know, we right. were cheap, and you know, my job was to you know be Johnny on the spot, follow him around. You know, you want a cup of coffee? You want to go? You need to ride. He had a little RV that he would come in, so he'd do his work in the car because he lived out on Broad Beach. And right, and they carry, and they couldn't have been nicer. They were you know very supportive and. When I eventually I got him on as a guest on the first week of my talk show, I said, Dick, do you remember when I used to work for you? And he goes, oh, don't tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> but now that he's dead and gone, rest in peace, we can tell the story. You know? well, and, and I think that's why. Uh, uh, no, no, Mark would have told that story anyway. Yeah. I think he would have told that story anyway. The, the idea of also being, uh, and I'm going to use this in a, in a good way, being the enabler for young people, for, for young talent coming up or letting somebody know. I mean, somebody as big as Dick Clark who, yes, had an ego and all that too, but remembered what it was like 
coming. I would imagine. Right. Remember what it was like coming up. Remember what it was like. Yeah. Well, he saw him when he was doing bandstand in Philadelphia, or wherever he did it. I mean, he saw all the young stars and you know people that he put on, and he and he he <laughs> obviously had joy from like putting somebody on his show and seeing them go on to have a big career. Right. You and know? and and he didn't. I, mean, I don't know how you deal with, with, with professional jealousy, but for me, I feel like I, I, didn't, I did it for a bit, and then I hated my, the way I was feeling, and then I started celebrating everybody else's success. Right. Well, there was, it was always like, yeah, you, you can't really look at other people's success with envy because it doesn't really do anything for you. I used to look, I mean, there were guys like, uh, like Gary Shandling, who I just like, how come he's getting all this press and I'm going to get no press? We right. had the same publicist. You know, it was like, two, you know, why? Right. What, right. What's the difference? But, you know, his show was much hipper and had a different, much different kind of following. Ours was much more mainstream. Right. So I don't think that does you any good because everybody brings a different skill set. Everybody's going to get rewarded at a different place in their life. I mean, you know, I found with guests when I was doing a talk show, it was the nicest guests were people who had a career, lost them, and now we're coming back for the second time because they knew what it's all about. Yep. And people who are, you know, on the rise, overnight successes, uh, you know, they, they, they think it's going to be like this forever, you know. There are some comics, you know, they get a, they sell a show, they started, I forget, it was Blake Clark maybe, who bought uh, a house. And he, the minute his show was sold, he bought a, like a $3 million house. Show's canceled after eight, and the house is sold for 2.4, you know. Right. You go, hey, you know, and the old comics would always say, keep the nut low, save your money. You never you never believed them. I mean, I think it's the... It's the uh, it's the it's the trappings for athletes and Hollywood and you know there's any kind of overnight success you you just think this is going to happen forever like right. you know, this money's coming in forever oh. you know, let's lease a big car and let's get a big house and well you didn't you probably did, had no idea that you're going to be where it was that you where where it is that you are right now just in terms of all the things that you've uh, and I don't mean the the material object that you've amassed but all the different things that you've done and and you never know where your career is going to go but I think that you need to be mindful at that moment this is just where I am right. and it's not going to last forever right. But that's not to say that I have to live in lack. Because if I want to buy a house, I don't right. need to buy a $3 million right. house. I could buy a house for a million. Yeah. But you find joy where you are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... I was talking to uh, Steve Levitan at, uh, the other day from Modern Family. And, right. and I said, you know, it must be feeling great to have this big hit. He goes, it's more work than ever. And he's been a guy who's been around since Shandling. He did right. Larry Sanders. He did Shoot Me. Uh, he did the Back to You with Kelsey and Patty Heaton. Right. That didn't work. And he says, I'm happy to have a show that's working. And we're giving it every ounce of our effort now because... And- because we we this is a place you know where we're in a great place right now. So they are with a great cast, enjoyed, yeah. an amazing cast yeah. of people who I think all. If you look at a lot of those people, those people are the people that you're talking about that went up like this and then went down like right. this. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what's his name? Tyrell. Stone Street, Eric Stone Street. Well, not just Eric. Oh, oh Eric, Ed, Ed O'Neill. Ed O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. Ed O'Neill. I mean, there's a great example. Ed O'Neill, great actor, then married with children. Right. And you go, he's done. Right. But he's not. No. Well, and so, I, yeah, I don't think no matter what they have, they're never. I don't think you ever want to be done. You may want to break. No, but I think yeah. a lot of people go, "He's done," or it's right. like, "What is he going to do?" Well, the industry but likes to say, "Okay, next. that's what I yeah. mean," and yeah. not to buy into the industry and not to buy into the talk because that isn't who it is that you are. You're not who they think you are. You are who you think you are. Right. Right. And um, uh, what's what was what was um, uh, 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 Katie Segal? Mm-hmm. The same sort of thing where she's on. She's the amazing right. work that she's done too. Right. She was a huffer. She was. She right. worked for Bette Midler. I'm right. all this other. The stuff that she's done then she's unmarried with children mm-hmm. and then she does that right. you know that that show it doesn't tank certainly i mean yeah. it's just a, a, a seminal show that made fox but then she's now she's on sons of anarchy oh yeah in yeah. a totally different part right 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 
and she reinvented herself. Mm-hmm. Because well, it she, didn't hurt that her husband created the show and runs right, the show. Right, but if she didn't have but it, then she yeah, wouldn't, you know, if she didn't her. have the chops, she wouldn't be doing it. But yeah, I mean, everybody is quick to sort of write you off and say, well, they, you know, and I'm sure, you know, all, anybody after your show ends, you're calling your agent, you go, now what? And the agent's saying, oh, you know, it's going to be a tough sale. <laughs> I had an agent once send to me, you're too much work. And I said, too much work? What, because you have to answer the phone or because you have to dial the phone? You know I mean? <laughs> But agents truly don't want to work for you. I think no. they just want to just like feel the calls. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think a lot of young actors are probably saying, oh, you know, my, my agent fired me. It's like, you know what? I think you dodged a bullet there. Right. Because if they didn't have the confidence in you, you don't want to, I don't want to be going to a party where the people at the party don't want me there. Right. And it's easy to say, but I really, really need them. It's like, do you need that? Do you need that Soros? Do you need that trouble? Do you need that? Because a relationship that makes me, makes my stomach hurt, I don't want to be part of that relationship. Right. Well, and, you want to live in a health, you know, I think you want to live in a healthy world now and 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 people the 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 classic case of struggling struggling actor you know waiting tables living in a little apartment you know it's it's part of the 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 journey but nobody wants to be when they are successful they don't want to be reminded of that struggle so they don't want to look back at those times and that's the sad thing is you got it you better appreciate the times where you were and where you are now where you are now you really need to appreciate that time and i think that that's a great thing because um, people go, oh, I'm struggling. I'm a struggling actor. And whenever I hear an actor say that, I say, you're not a struggling actor. You're an actor. Mm-hmm. This is part of what it is that we do. Right. And when you call yourself a struggling actor, the shiny object of that sentence is struggling. Right. And I don't want to have that shiny object always shining at me if I know I could dim that thing down by right. just turning that light off. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying Casting I'm an actor. Casting out doubt. Yeah. Say that again? Casting out your doubt. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Casting out your doubt. Not engaging in the doubt. Not going towards that shiny object right. of uh, struggling. Mm-hmm. But you're right. All those things about being, you know, the jobs that you've just described and the jobs that I've described, that my jobs, uh, one of the jobs that I had was called a courier. It sounds really clean, mm-hmm. but this was my job. In between my auditions at, in Chicago, I went with my friend Richard Label. He would join me in the car, and we would smoke cigarettes and drive around. And I, this is my job. I worked at a place called Elmar Mole Clinical Lab. Mm-hmm. And they did tests on blood and urine and semen and, and I did that cough. this morning, actually. I did it this morning, but for my own good. I missed it. I, I just do it around it. So yeah. I would go to these, I would go, I would work there. I would go to hospitals. Pick up without gloves on. This is days before AIDS. Without gloves on in a a a file cabinet top Mm, of a box, and I would go there and pick up urine and Mm. feces and drive around. I loved that job (laughs) because it gave me the you know in between going to one hospital and going back there, I'd go to an audition in Chicago. I'd go to an audition. Yeah. God bless those people. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's all part of the. It's all part of the journey. You know. And to appreciate that that journey. Right. So you're in you're in Florida now. I'm in Florida now, yes. And, and, and I did a film there in 05. We shot a film called Hoot, which was a Carl Hyacinth book that uh, became a movie. And Jimmy Buffett had the rights and called right. me up. He said, how are we going to make this? And I said, well, you know, get a script you like. And then, you know, then we go sell the script. Because the book obviously had been around for a few years. And nobody's bought the book or option the book. So right. goes, I have the option of the book. I said, well, then Jimmy Buffett said I had the, uh, the He had the option. Yeah, because he he's option. friends with Carl. They're fishing buddies. Uh-huh. So I, uh, <laughs> Who isn't Jimmy Buffett yeah. a fishing buddy? Of? Oh, yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy's one of the great guys to hang out with. I mean, Jimmy is successful. He got, he's got a life. And, and at 63, I think he's 63, every year he does something to improve himself. Right. I'm going to learn to snowboard this year. I'm going to take immersive French. I'm going to do that. He, he's a tremendously challenged for, you know, to, to always In a good grow. Way. And always grow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and plus he's a very successful business. And he's got enterprises, beer and tequila and 
Well, looking you know. at looking at a lot of those people, uh, he's one of them, and Dave Eggers is an author. He's another one of those where you you look at it, and and I don't think the word oh, and Vince Vaughn's another one. People that I talk to, um, they don't see no as an answer. Right. Yeah, that's great. I mean, when you look at guys like Mark Wahlberg and guys like Ryan Seacrest, who who just they're now enter- You know, Ryan looked at Dick Clark and said, "I want to be Dick Clark," and he's right. that, and he's got twelve, twenty shows on the air. Right. You know, those guys. Yeah, they don't. They don't. We tend to talk, I mean, I, and I'm guilty of it, talk myself out of stuff. You right. Know, like, oh, you Engaging know. Engaging Yeah, somebody called me and said, there's an episode of Glades in Florida looking for a director that fell out. I'm like, you know, I should just call and pitch myself. And I'm like, eh, he's not going to take my call and I'm going to be humiliated and why bother? And right. So I, I cast it off on the agent. Let her make the call because she could take that rejection. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it is, it is a, it's always that challenge to, to, uh, to keep pitching yourself, keep, you know, no matter what you do. And I, I couldn't recommend more to have multiple jobs. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's funny, Tony Scott uh, said the first day of a movie shoot, and this is a guy that did Top Gun and and, and, and Enemy of State. I mean, great movie. He said the first day of the movie shoot is the most uh, dreaded day of my life because mm-hmm. it's now I have to, you know, I have this new crew and I have to prove that I'm a leader and then I can take them into battle. And, right. and, and, and you know, and... I had that doubt with the first time I directed a feature. Now I've been shooting with cameras my whole life, but you know, walking into that feature the first day, you're thinking, and you're looking around, you know, hey, what are we doing today? You go, oh, they're all looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> but you just go, okay, here we go, let's go. First shot. I forget what the, remember the first shot was. I, I got, you know, got you got going. I had, you know, I surrounded myself with a great DP with a ton of experience, Michael right. Chapman, who had done. Had directed himself. He directed all the right moves in Clan of the Cave Bear, but he had shot Taxi Driver, The Fugitive, Raging Bull. Jeez. On his resume, he didn't even have Jaws and The Godfather, of which he was an operator. He worked for Gordon Willis because we were talking about movies and on the boat. He goes, well, on Jaws, we did this. I go, did you work on Jaws? He goes, yeah. I go, it's not even on your resume. He goes, ah, I was just an operator, you know. <laughs> but but Chappie was, he knew, he, he you know, when I went to Walden, I said, I want to hire this. He came in for this meeting, and he, he said, I like the script. There's just Ospreys don't fly in Paris. They fly alone. You mm-hmm. know, there's a guy that had detail and read the script. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked, and he was going to work for the money we had, you know, which was, I mean, there's, there's not, we didn't have the Richard Deacons, you know, the big, you know, big, big DP money. But Michael had a resume, you know, a mile long. And when I said, well, I'm going to hire this guy, and he said, you're hiring a 72-year-old DP? I said, I'm hiring 50 years of experience. Right. You know, I don't care how old he is. Right. He's a spry. I mean, Michael had more energy, but he knew to take naps at lunch. That was right. Like, right. But he had more energy than, than any of us. You well, know? it's like saying Haskell Wexler doesn't. Yeah. You know, he's an old man. Yeah. How he can do yeah. anything? That's like, yeah. are you kidding me? But this guy invented. Yeah. yeah. I, people tend to, and this business tends to cast off old people as, as worthless. When we were doing Fraser and Becker, we had writers who were older writers. David Lloyd, who right. crea- was one of the creators, one of the main driving force of Maritime Moore Cheers, and we had. Uh, uh, a guy on Becker uh, who came in one day a week and for the table read, but they would go through and they would have like we had one story where the the story just didn't work, mm-hmm. and he was just well here's the problem, you if Hattie is not on board with what Ted's doing in this thing, it's not going to work. She has to be in on the on the conspiracy. That was the problem fixed. I'm right. uh, moving on, and right. and you say here's a guy that understands story, understand you know. But they only get they would get one day as a consultant on the show, right? Um, just because that's you know you're old and who wants old voices in the writing room? You know what? You get tremendous experience in the writing room. Well, I guys. you know talk, anybody that anybody that's that's looking to to work or engaging in this this occupation needs to listen. Mm. We, we and it's not me going oh those young kids they don't listen. But I think that there is a culture of the young kids don't listen. 
Well, I, my problem with young kids is they don't know how to fix it. You know, they can say what they don't like, and the in the executive right. stables, you know, well, oh, that's not funny. We didn't like that. We don't right. like the, the the B story about you know, it doesn't. You know, well, oh, how would you change it? Oh, I don't know. That's what you guys do. You know, right? Well, if you've got nothing to offer, then shut up. Right, <laughs> right. If, yeah. if you want, it's easy to say what's wrong. Right. But if you want to, if you want to tell me what's wrong. Tell me what you think would work. Right. And it's having that confidence to go, I could be wrong in telling you what I think is wrong, right. and I could be wrong in telling you how to fix it, right. but I need to get that out. Right. Um, Carl Gottlieb was, you know, talk about Jaws. Sure. He, I interviewed Carl, and Carl was a, like you in that he has done so many things, and when you do all of those things, you're living your life. Mm-hmm. You're not just fixing stuff, you're living your life and you're able to use that, um, his, his experience from uh, being, an, uh, being an actor and an improviser in writing Jaws, in mm. saying yes to that, that right. area is gonna help you with that area, is gonna help you with that area, and it goes back to what we were talking right. about earlier. If you have doubt in one of those areas, it's right. gonna affect everything that you're doing. Right. And, and, and in the case of Jaws, you know, the shark didn't work. The mechanical shark. And, that, and they made up a movie on the spot. Chappie said, we used to sit around and die for clams because they were trying to figure out what's this movie. So, like, the, when the shark didn't work, then they had to create the presence of the shark as the fear. But th- that was something that either Gart- Gottlieb or, or Spielberg figured out. We right. can do this, you know, well, we, well, we got we got a, we got a crew here. We got cameras. <laughs> right. We got some people wondering what's gonna, where all this money's going. We better do something. But I think that was the brilliance of that movie was sometimes not seeing the shark. Right. Well, and also John Williams' music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, man. Because it was not. It was about that. That music people changed. swimming. Yeah. Yeah, that you music, know, that shot, just, yeah, the shot yeah, of the, the legs. The legs of just legs going, no, nobody knew that. But it goes back to what Hitchcock was saying. It's not the shot going off. It's the anticipation mm-hmm. of the shot might go off. Right. And we want answers right away. Right. And it's not about... It's not. It's not about the answer. It's about the journey to the answer. Right. Right. I mean, that's what Tarantino does so well. Is he takes his time to get to, you know, in, in *Inglorious Bastards* when they're in that scene in the cabin and the family's under this. I mean, oh my God. no other right. director would have been allowed to have that much tension set up. But he just, you know, we just kept. We knew what was going to happen, but he took a tremendous amount of time to get us there. Yes. And that's what I like about, you know, that's as a filmmaker when you are in. When, and these guys that I listen to speak, I mean, they're all in that control where they get final cut. They can do what they want. Right. And that's. I think essentially what everybody shoots for, but uh, that's what makes sort of an author, uh, an auteur of a movie, um, you know, sort of, you know, it makes it so much better because they were allowed to, to bring to it what they do what they see their certainly, sensibility. Certainly. And to be able to t- to have the, the, the words to say, listen, I know that you want to cut this scene right now. I know I know right. that you want to cut at this moment, but we need to build that pressure up. You've got to trust me on this. Trust. Mm. I, I trust me and I need to convince you to trust me as well. Right. And in my convincing you to trust me, I need for you to trust you. Right. That you trust me. Did you right. follow that? Yeah, I did. There's a lot of trust involved. There. There's a lot <laughs> of trust involved. There's <laughs> a tremendous amount of trust. Yeah, but you know, people. I mean, the the industry now. I mean, with our little film, we got these focus groups. People that were not smart enough about getting out of sitting in a focus group. And I always find these are people at the mall that really had nothing else to do. Right. They come and sit, and they they basically create the cuts of your film because the the studio listens to these people and they moderate well, what did you not get well, who did you like who didn't you like i mean and and if if a focus if, if focus groups and research was accurate we'd have no failures right you know there's there's surely something just to look at evaluate but then put aside but that's what drove me crazy in my movie process with new line was the focus groups really we did cuts just for them Mm. Like, mm. 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 How many movies have been ruined? How many movies have been ruined that way? More than I mean, there's a couple of books writers talk about just how you know how the studios have ruined their movies, whether it's 
whether it's the marketing, whether it's the cut, whether it's the tone, what you know, I right? Mean, and and that's the you know that's the sad part of the business, the big business today. When they've got, I mean, they've got a lot invested. You know, uh, when you when you've got a movie like the Bond, I had lunch with a woman that was involved with the Bond, last Bond movie, mm-hmm. it made over a billion dollars. You right. know, there was a lot of th- thought into how that market. Wow. You know, right. But uh, and then she did social network and a couple. You know, and, and you know, it's all it's all. I mean, a movie. It's funny. I was talking to uh, 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 David Frankel, who did. Devil Wears Prada. When he did Marley and Me, which my wife was working on, we got to know David. And and when they put the re- the trailer out for the Marley and Me, it was like, oh, it's a happy-go-lucky right, dog. Right, right. Just, you know, nobody told me the dog dies and my <laughs> no. kid cries for three days afterwards. <laughs> exactly. I said, but are you upset with the way they're marketing the movie because it's not really the movie? He goes, I, you know, I just leave that to Fox. They seem to know what they're doing. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and it was a brilliant campaign because everybody went to see a movie. It wasn't, you right? Know, but they oh, went. You know, oh, right, yeah, right. It got in there. It's like, wait a minute, yeah. bait and switch. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a happy dog. Yeah, Oh, that's a movie about idea. a Labrador. Yeah. It's so cute. <laughs> it's so cute. Like Old Yeller is right. going to be like Old Yeller. Yeah. Like, oh, it's a movie about it. Well, yeah, I what mean, this, could go yeah. wrong? Well, this movie, Amour, it's about love. I don't know if you've seen it. It's <laughs> like, so depressing. She I gets know. dementia. I, I, I said halfway through, I tried to smother my TV with a pillow. I was so depressed by the, But it's, it, you know, but it's sold as a, like a love story. You right. Know? But it is, there's not, there's. You know, I you know I was ready to kill. That was a bullet to the head. My friend, right. My friend Larry, bullet to the head. He says, "That's what you feel like doing after you see the movie." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but uh, you know, it, it's it's show business. Tom always used to say, you know, and the biggest word, the bigger word is business. Right. Teresa would always talk about, and you and, and and a number of people would talk about that. But it is the business first, and the show second. You know? I think the thing about Dreesen that I really like when I spoke with Tom, he was my first guest, and I think he really set the tone of the podcast, and because. All the things that, that you have this as well. It's that there's there's a there's a spirit underneath a positive spirit, right? And it's infectious, right? And and that infectiousness gets on people in a way that they they want to keep giving you work. Yeah, and you want to be around it. I mean, in 1977, my first few times at the comedy store, this was back before the strike. But Tom was there, and he goes, "Oh, it's the best job in the world." He would say, "Oh, you got to, you know." He and he was like already established, but right. he encouraged so many young comics and. You know, you try to give that back. You know, try not to be cynical. You know? Right. You want to be the Dick Clarks. You want to be right. the Tom Dreesons. You you want to be those people that um, to say, look, I'm going to lift you up, and I don't right. care because I've already I'm here. Right. And I and and my lifting you up does not take anything away from where it is that I am. Right. Yeah. And you're you're not in fear. There were many people that were in fear of the other guy getting your job. I right. Mean, if you if you you know if you look at you know. If you look at the audition, you know, in the room, it's not really a collaborative process. You know, we're sitting in a room and there's six of us, and you go, "Well, he's better looking, but you know, I'm, you know, I'm taller." And, right. and you know, and, and I used to think, see the room as the enemy. And, and when I got on the other side of the camera as a director, we just want that next guy to come through the door, be interesting, nail it, so we can stop looking. We want to be done looking. We want that right. next person to be the one we hire. That's and and people say. I, 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 how many actors are, are talking themselves out of parts because they're walking in there listening to their ego saying this person doesn't need me right. and you know what then they don't right Yeah. We, we, we've had actors come in and say you know I, I, I punch this up a little bit and, oh, oh you know, it's a the nightmare you know the, the, uh, we were doing a pilot uh, with Debbie Reynolds and this actor this cocky actor came in and said, you, know, I, I, you know I didn't think it was that funny so I, I, you know, I added some stuff I hope you're okay with that and the girl was like okay the writer let's, let's see what you did and afterwards what'd you think I forget what she's something as cruel as you could say to this guy. I mean, just the guy just, you know, he said, 
you made it worse. I mean, it was just something, you know, just, and, and this, the, you know, and I say to actors all the time, they want to hear their words as they're written. Right. Because they spent a lot of time in the room. They didn't just like, let's see if some knucklehead can make this better. They got to a point where they were right. like, we're going to type this up and print it. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Somebody yeah. had an idea that is not your idea, right. and for you to come in here at that point, there's right. an arrogance that right. you have there. But this woman did that guy a favor, because the next time, I mean, he could look at it and say, you know, screw that bitch. Yeah. She screwed Show didn't over. go anywhere. That was, it was exactly. Was funny, yeah. yeah, right. Doesn't you know who yeah. I am? But at the same time, it's like, no, dude, no, no. You're a perfect. And I think a lot of actors don't see it as the need to be professional. Right. Oh, yeah. And come in the room. The minute I always say the audition starts when you open the door. Right. And people don't think that they come in. They're gonna, you know, kibitz. You know, be funny. And you know, you are. Are you the character? We just want to hear you. That's why these gone to cast it so much. Because if you put people on video, you don't have to have any pleasantries. You look at their tape, and you That's ah, really and you can really shave the amount of people you can see in an hour. Right. We're on a lunch hour on a sitcom. We go to read some people. We've only got, you know, we're going to try and eat lunch and see these people. We've only got so much time, but we don't. We don't have time for small talk. Right. And so that's, you know, unfortunately, you got to be good on video because now. You know that that's where it's all going to go. You're right. going to, you know, I mean, people submit themselves a lot already, but you know, a lot of it doesn't really get through the filters. You know, right. but uh, when you do a movie, cast it, which is a, a professional thing you hire, and, and we could all look at it. We could circle who we liked. When you have multiple, you have a studio considering people, and you have, you know, you had the the the, the, the uh, producer who was somewhere else. All of us were in different places. Jimmy was somewhere else. We could. Well, these are our top three choices. They could look them up, and everybody could weigh in. You know, because you couldn't physically get everybody in the room. But for us, we found we found a young kid from Chicago who was in Second City who was great. Never done anything. I mean, and you know, what's his name? His name was Eric Phillips. Eric Phillips. Eric, Eric Phillips, big kid. Uh huh. He played the bully in this thing, but he because he, uh -huh. he, the bully couldn't be, the bully had to be a, a, an ass, but he could. You know, we wanted him to have something p pathetic about him. And when you saw his mother and his relationship with his mother, you almost felt sorry for him. You know. And uh, you know, but but that cast had found him. You know, he we put out a circular, and people put themselves on tape. And I remember seeing him and going, "This guy's kind of interesting." Oh, nice. You know, and that's you know, and, and you love the fact that you can find people that way. And that that's the again the new technology exposing you know people you haven't seen. But I always say when you go in a room, make choices. Don't just don't do what's on the page. Make choices, right or wrong, but make some choices. Make strong choices yeah. of what's on the page, right? As opposed to you bringing in. Well, you don't come in. You know, so I've decided I'm going to have a parrot in this. Right. Or, <laughs> or, or the idea of I punch it up. Right. Yeah. No, just the punch up is, is bad. Yeah, yeah. Punch up is bad. All right. Let's end it there. That was really fun, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on ADD Comedy, you can visit our website at www.theaddcomedytour.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ADD Comedy Pod. If you're in the Los Angeles area and you're interested in taking a class with Dave, you can find that information at his website at www.davidrosowski.com. Sound services for the ADD Comedy Podcast was brought to you by Post Apocalyptic.